Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and know only that you are welcome. Yes, welcome to the nookish part of the District of Wonders, to Tales to Terrify. Oh, just come in. Grab a beverage, scoop some treats. Yes, I'm Lawrence Santoro, and welcome to you. It is October. It is 81 degrees. Ah, well. October is a month that is its own country, according to Ray Bradbury, so why not its own climate? Autumn, of course, means the burgeoning of pumpkins, harvest, the scent of apples and cinnamon, and, of course, the loom of Halloween out there on the horizon. Here I am, a writer, and now a purveyor of the strange and horrid, and I never dress for Halloween, not since sixth grade, my last school Halloween party at which costumes were mandatory and bobbing for apples compulsory, have I wrapped myself in some fictive persona of crepe and cloth and makeup and such? One of these evenings, yes, I'll tell you about it, suffice it for me to say now, 
this early in the season that I consider myself to be a professional, a writer and reader of and for all seasons. And Halloween? Well, that is there for the once-a-year punter, the paint-your-face-and-wear-a-silly-hat-and-tutu kind of person, uh, carry a drink in the hand and bear a fatuous grin upon the gob kind of guy. Back in the callow shallows of my life, I used to drink quite a bit. Rare was the evening when I... Well, never mind. But even then, when a drinker, New Year's Eve, for example, my chums in cups and I stayed in, observed the turn of the year by our absence from the melee. Well, I will say that one year, when I was living in London... I nearly joined some friends in taking a quick dip in a slosh in Trafalgar Square on the eve, but, but, but I did not. And there it was. A life of missed opportunities later, and I welcome you to October in the Nook. I have my hot chocolate, and you, you are welcome to the largesse of the pantry, but settle soon and with a chum for tonight. Tonight. We have Mike Allen, this month sans Shallon Hurlbert, and after that, some music of a dark and nasty tone and a tale of terror, horror, and body parts, during which you may wish to do the auditory equivalent of hiding your eyes now and then as the tale spools out to you, but don't. First things. Next. Here is Mike Allen and this month's tour of the abattoir. Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen... And you'll be horrified to learn that I've actually turned a column in on time this month. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the reading that Larry shared with you of The Red Empress, part one of my first novel, The Blackfire Concerto, available on Amazon.com. I got a lot of great feedback about Claire, a.k.a. CSE, Cooney's delightfully dark reading. I'm so grateful she was willing to do that. Claire, if you're listening, I owe you a solid, or two, or five. The last time I did a solo column, after spending the entire time trashing poor Scott Ziegler, I promised I'd talk to you about Joe Hill and his new novel, Nosferatu. That's spelled out like a license plate, by the way, N-O-S-4-A-2. And I'm ready to do it, at last. I'm sure the Tales to Terrify audience knows who Joe Hill is, but on the off chance that you actually don't, his full name is Joseph Hillstrom King. He's one of the sons of Stephen King, the all-time horror meister of the 20th century, and perhaps the 21st. The younger King has been publishing fiction for over a decade under the pseudonym Joe Hill, as a way to have his stories showcased without being eclipsed by the distraction of the family name. He's only had three novels published so far, and a collection of short stories. 
as well as a comic book series or two, or maybe more, that I haven't read, so I'm not qualified to talk about those. I do have to say, so far he seems more consistent than his dad in delivering Cracker Jack stories. I first became familiar with Joe Hill's work when a friend gave me a copy of his debut novel, Heart-Shaped Box. This horror tale about an aging heavy metal star who purchases a haunted suit on eBay and immediately regrets it was right up my alley, from its merciless ghostly villain to its lightning-fast pace to its oodles and oodles of rock and roll and heavy metal references. I didn't love every story in his debut collection, 20th Century Ghosts, but a few stuck with me such as The Black Phone, a chilling tale about a boy being held prisoner by a child killer, a theme that we'll come back to later, who starts receiving messages from the previous victim. Best New Horror, in which a jaded horror anthology editor ends up at the mercy of a family like the Sawyers from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is also pretty wonderful. And there are others. His second novel, Horns, I didn't like as much as Heart-Shaped Box. I think the fact that most of the novel is an extended flashback serves to dilute the story's impact, and the ending felt a little hokey to me. That said, it's still a darkly entertaining ride. The premise is that a man falsely blamed for the murder of his girlfriend wakes up one morning with horns growing from his forehead and the ability to make people confess secrets and act on their worst desires. This is helpful, obviously, in determining who the killer really is, but one of the cooler twists of the story is the way the power sometimes backfires on our sullen hero after all, the darkest desire that he triggers might be an urge to kill the guy with the horns. <laughs> Speaking of darkly entertaining rides, much of Nosferatu takes place inside a car, which might remind you a bit of his father's novel, Christine. It certainly reminded me of that tale from the 80s, at least for a little while. Joe Hill actually offers a lot of tips of the hat to his dad in this new novel, but the Rolls-Royce Wraith, driven by villain Charlie Manx in Nosferatu, is a considerably weirder creation than Stephen King's haunted Plymouth Fury. Just like its titular vehicle, Nosferatu is a hard-driving narrative. It's a credit to Joe Hill's skill that he makes a 700-page book feel like a 300-page book. Essentially, you have two storylines that zoom toward each other and crash early on, then chase each other through the rest of the book. The first involves Manx, who at the start seems like yet another variant on the overly verbose and perverse killer that we've seen in any number of horror films and in some of Stephen King's work. But he proves not so much to be a serial killer as something along the lines of an energy vampire, and the way he operates feels fresh because it's spectacularly strange. More about that in just a bit. The second story, Strand, follows a young girl named Vic, 
who has the power to find anything that's lost. Her power manifests in a curious way. There's a covered wooden bridge that only she can see, and when she rides her bike through it, and it's only her bike, mind you, that will work, she comes out where the person, place, or thing she wants to find happens to be. But when she does this, the bridge becomes visible, which causes some wonderful and wild, surreal and suspenseful scenarios as people unwittingly discover this bridge lodged into an alley or a hallway or jutting out of a tree line. A cool character that I really admired, a punk librarian named Maggie, reminded me of my buddy Patty Templeton. Except Templeton is much more of a badass, trust me. Maggie contacts Vic to tell her there are other people like her, with talents, and she might be the one who can defeat Manx. A few years later, however, Vic provokes a confrontation with Manx without really understanding what he is, and it doesn't go so well for her. But neither does Manx escape unscathed. At this point, this might sound like I'm sharing spoilers, but trust me, this is all set up, and pretty brilliant set up at that. Now, back to Manx. Hill swipes a number of borrowed parts to build his monster, but the recombination feels completely original. Manx proves to be an electrifying foe. He and his car are essentially two aspects of one predatory being. They even share a consciousness, which makes for particularly disastrous consequences for a minor character who comes into possession of the car after it's been wrecked and makes the mistake of restoring it. The car is capable of draining the soul of someone who rides in it, transforming them into something feral in the process. More than that, I shouldn't reveal... Manx preys on children and justifies what he does with claims that he is saving them from the horrors of the world, and his methods are, to some degree, seductive rather than brutal. The brutality he reserves for the adults who try to stop his mission. And number one on that hit list is Vic. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least make a mention of the secondary villain, Manx's mentally disturbed sidekick, Bing who has a truly gross and sexually sadistic serial killer M.O., Joe Hill wisely leaves a lot to the imagination when describing being at work. Let's just say that when Manx takes a child, he hands over their mommies, and sometimes their daddies, to Bing. Vic, for her part, has a handicap. The powers she and others like her possess have ugly side effects the more often they're used, which have the net effect overall of making the evil ones more soulless and nasty as their careers and killings stretch into the decades, and the good ones severely psychologically and even physically damaged by the time they've reached their adult years. In Vic's case... Riding her bike across her non-existent bridge does harm to her mental stability, leaving her in a really vulnerable state just when she needs to be at her sharpest. While this lays the groundwork for some incredibly suspenseful storytelling, 
Vic's inability to distinguish between delusion and real threat leads to my one major complaint about Nosferatu. You know how horror movie after horror movie presents us with situations where we as viewers know our hero or our final girl or whomever is in terrible danger, and yet they cluelessly wander off by themselves or open the door you know they shouldn't or any number of similar stupid actions. Well, Nosferatu resorts to this particular tactic a few times too many, in my humble opinion. Having characters who should damn well know what it means to be up against an immortal psychopath, needlessly placing themselves in danger, or failing to recognize the peril that they're in until it's too late to respond when the bad guys bring the pain. I suppose I have to give Hill credit at least for making these mistakes count. The good guys definitely suffer for their lapses in judgment, Yet he resorts to this tactic often enough that it begins to feel like a cheap trick or a shortcut, just like it does in the movies. On the other hand, the bizarre Christmas-themed showdown that takes place in a reality not our own at the conclusion of the book is, I think, the most satisfying end yet to one of Joe Hill's novels. It certainly has a stronger ending than Heart-Shaped Box, which to my mind puts it on par with that book, if not perhaps surpassing it overall. Hopefully all of that gives you some perspective, but also whets your appetite. Nosferatu is absolutely worth checking out, and I hope you will. Since I'm not at the moment trying to flood the world with new books of my own, I can actually tell you what plans are for some of the future tours. Because I actually have some plans. (laughs) Coming up, you'll hear about Laird Barron's new collection, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All. And also about an obscure little treasure I found written by the hero of my teenage years, Clive Barker. And of course, my buddy Shallon Hurlbert will be back. And Shallon and I have a double feature coming up about a couple of very obscure movies that address mental breakdowns in creepy ways. So keep your ear to the ground, though not a graveyard ground, or else a zombie might eat it. And until next time, stay scared. Thanks, Mike. Well, at least this time, I won't have to pony up more money to pick up a film or a book after hearing your thoughts. I'd already ponied it up for Nosferatu. Back in show number 69, we cast a tale called The Anatomy of Seahorses, remember? That was by the author of tonight's tale, Mr. John Dodds. Tonight's tale, I'm glad you asked, is called A Crow Among the Starlings. And it is narrated by Jonathan Taylor. I mention our narrator at the top of the fiction segment here because the experience of Mr. Dodd's story for us here in the Nook tonight begins and ends with a musical bridge by Mr. Taylor that will take us from here into a very dark, very disturbed place, then bring us out again. John Dodds is a writer from Scotland 
who lives in Bulgaria. He's the author of numerous short stories and several novels. Three of his short tales received honorable mentions in Ellen Datlow's The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror Anthologies. Okay, I'll have a bit more at the end of John's tale about John, but I, I want to get you started properly. So, here is Jonathan Taylor singing, then there will be Jonathan Taylor narrating John Dodd's A Crow Among the Starlings. Hold on. There's some deadly sins in this world of mine Let's squeeze in some more, baby Tales to terrify uh-huh, yeah. Pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, covetous, slow A rock and roll man. Get thee behind me, Satan I believe that was the priest's last words. <laughs> Before I ate him, every piece. Some deadly sins in this world of mine. Let's squeeze in some more, baby. Tales to terrify. Crow Among the Starlings by John Dodds, read by Jonathan Taylor, British singer-songwriter. There had to be a flaw in the lens, no matter which print Saul examined or from which angle he'd shot Martin Pearson's portrait. The result was the same. There was no reflection in his left eye, the last thing his victims might have seen in that eye, instead of the tiny image of their screaming faces, was a black hole. In 15 years of photographer, Saul Mears knew how capricious light could be, how flirtatious, how seductive or perverse and unresponsive. So if it wasn't the lens, then the light was toying with him again. One of the qualities that picture editors liked about Saul was how he always referred to himself as a snapper, not an artist. Many editors treated him as a mere snapper, even though they recognised him as a superb photographer, in case they had to cough up a larger fee. But once in a rare while, a prestigious magazine would pick up his work. On this occasion, it was the Metropolitan Magazine, which commissioned work that often ended up in a gallery or garnered awards. And when that commission was a series of portraits of psychopathic murderers with a large cheque attached, Saul could hardly say no. Lately, good commissions had been few and far between. He had even been supplementing his income, photographing weddings and children's parties, and resenting every moment of it. Instead of trying to fix the flaw in the photograph, he chose to leave it the way it was, let the editor decide for herself if the pictures were compelling enough for her exacting standards. If not, he would just have to reshoot, and that would raise the stakes even higher. He still felt bad, though, about the deal he'd made with Pearson before giving permission for his portrait to be taken. The killer wanted to see the forensic pictures of his last victim, a 23-year-old man named Rankin, and he wanted to choose one of them to keep. 
The Metropolitan provided Saul with funds to buy the loan of negatives from the forensics photographer. He made prints overnight and returned them before anyone could find out. What Pearson was doing with the photograph he had selected, Saul tried not to imagine. In the psychiatric evaluation unit where Pearson was presently housed, he would be allowed certain privileges, though access to photographs like this was unlikely to be among them. He clipped the prints to the drying line with the darkroom door closed behind him. He went to the dining table, where in a three-size portfolio wallet lay open. The portfolio contained his pictures for the Metropolitan, mounted on card in clear plastic wallets. Four serial killers, one a woman, all of them with one more thing in common besides murder. A blackness, a lack of emotional engagement... Yet they were good talkers, some even telling him they knew and admired his work. Saul had studied their case records for background. No good asking why they'd committed their atrocious crimes, because it always came down to a single answer. Because they could. The phone rang. He picked up the receiver and gave his number. "'Will you use one of me smiling?' Mother always said, "'I have a great smile.' Saul recognised Pearson's papery, dry voice. How did you get this number? Anger popped in him like a flashbulb. Pearson said, Oh, you know, ways and means. Saul took a deep breath. Never mind. Yes, I probably will send that one. But they'll only use it if the editor likes it. It shows you in a different light. You mean if it doesn't make me look like Charles Manson, you don't want to make an icon out of me? He was about to answer no, but then thought that maybe that was what he really did want, his personal iconography of killers, a series of portraits, which could make his name. What is it you want, Mr Pearson? Saul was unsure how to address him, and formality seemed the safest course. It's OK. You can call me Martin. There was a lengthy pause. You know, I've been thinking about that, what I want... It's a question that's kind of preoccupied me since. I was a kid. I wanted people to respect me, but they never did. At least not when I was growing up. They do now, though, don't they? Saul glanced at his watch, 8.30pm. Pauline should have been here an hour ago. They were supposed to have a meal together, then go to the Stanley Kubrick retrospective at the film house. Through the bay window, he watched the setting sun make a silhouette of Colton Hill... A flock of starlings with a huge crow in their midst took flight from the roof of the tenement building opposite. Saul said, Yes, Martin, I suppose they do. Saul, you don't mind if I call you that, do you? The voice was quieter, a lover's whisper. Saul was anxious not to antagonise him. Although he was incarcerated for life, there was a quality about him that suggested he could cause harm at an arm's length. Saul's grandfather had been a student of the Quabala, and his stories of the pain dimensional realms frightened him as a child. And no matter how rational, how urbane he was as an adult, he could never quite scoff at mysticism the way many of his non-Jewish friends did. The idea that simply by wishing someone ill you could hurt them remained in his subconscious. No, he said, that's fine, everybody calls me that. Well then, Sol, I have another favour to ask. As you know, I am fond of photographs, and your skill impresses me. 
I managed to obtain back issues of magazines and papers in which your work has appeared. You managed to capture just the right moment, the telling expression. I don't know, it's, well, you're gifted, there's no doubt about it. Sol was not immune to flattery, even the flattery of a homicidal psychopath. Before he could answer, Pearson went on. The thing is, I need you to get another picture for me. Several, preferably. You know I can't. Oh, but I think you can, Saul. You know I can't. Oh, but I think you can, Saul. The voice instructed as much as cajoled. You see, my last victim was never found, and you have a chance to find him and let the police know where he is. Saul was certain Pearson would hear the hammering of his heart down the phone line. But first, I need you to photograph him, the way I left him, from every angle. I don't believe you, Pearson. Why don't you tell me what you really want? Saul sensed Pearson was trying to frighten him, and he wanted to call his bluff. Pearson said, in, in what sounded like genuine surprise, Oh, how odd. Why would I lie about something like that? A long pause, and then he added, Well, why don't you sleep on it first? And then hung up. When Pauling arrived an hour later, he was hugely relieved. The call had unnerved him. She was still wearing her business suit, which told the whole story, the accountancy firm exploiting her again. Pauline was too ambitious to leave them, and justified the long hours as a necessary step on the ladder to the top. I tried to ring you, she said, kissing him quickly and went to the kitchen cabinet to pour them both a stiff whisky. It was an editor. Want some sled shots at the festival? He was annoyed with himself for lying to her. If he was honest, though, it wasn't to protect Pauline from the sinister phone call, but because he hadn't made up his mind about what he was going to do about it. Hey, that's great! You might be able to sell them around! Pauline's smile changed her whole persona. The stern, somewhat serious facade she presented to clients was part of her, too, but Saul preferred the side of her he got. Hair down, so to speak. She added, Listen, do you mind if we don't go out tonight? He grinned and moved towards her, but she pushed him back with a playful shove of the shoulder. Sorry, mate, not that either. I'm knackered. A quiet drink in front of the telly, yeah? He must have looked crestfallen, because she added, Well, OK, maybe later, but I'll need some serious persuasion first. What the Metropolitan thought of his photograph was difficult to say. When Saul handed over the hardback envelope, the editor's assistant simply said, Great, thanks, and that was it. A fortnight passed before he heard anything more. A cheque arrived with a compliment slip and an unrecognisable signature. In spite of receiving his largest fee ever, he was disappointed at the lack of comment. If money was all that important to me, I'd be doing something else. Saul wasn't sure if Pauline were asleep or not. She had her arm curled across his chest as he lay in bed watching shadows from a bonfire on Colton Hill arrive across the ceiling. She mumbled an answer. He couldn't make it out. And before he could ask her to say it again, he realised she had fallen asleep. For the last few nights, he had been suffering from insomnia. Usually this happened from being stressed by a job or being unable to switch off the creativity cogs as they ground against each other to no apparent purpose. Lately it was the phone calls and emails. 
Martin Pearson either had access to the internet or he was routing his messages through a partner. Working with a partner seemed more likely, unless the psyche units were more liberal than he supposed. The email address was 124678 at encrypted. No way of tracing the originator. It said, He must be dead by now. Too bad. You might have saved him. Pearson was messing with his mind. There was no way he could have left his last victim alive and kept him alive for the months after the arrest and trial, unless again he had an accomplice. The idea chilled him, and he was almost overwhelmed with a sense of guilt for not informing the police immediately after Pearson's first phone call. Next day, the guilt was endorsed by a second email. I taped my phone call to you. Incidentally, the police might want to know about it. Once Pauline had gone to work, he put a call through to the psychiatric unit. He wanted to know, as background to the photo shoot, if Pearson was allowed special privileges. The duty officer, an educated-sounding man, with a hint of Goebbels' Glasgow in his voice, said, Aye, I'm sure he's got plenty. More than us, that's looking after him, I bet. Saul took this to mean access to a phone. The numbers would be registered, of course, but the content of the calls not necessarily recorded. He requested a meeting with the prisoner. Saul worked hard, long hours, well into the night. He saw Pauline less and less these days. Their relationship was beginning to feel the strain. Am I just a convenience for you, Saul? Sex when it suits you? This wasn't like her. A sharper tone had been entering their conversations lately, mild recriminations occasionally, as now escalating into accusations. I have to work, Pauline, he said, and he added his feeble rider. Freelancing isn't a nine-to-five job, plus it doesn't offer a pension scheme. Taking this last to be a comment about her own job with a decent salary, perks and pension, Pauline spat. I knock my pan out for every penny, mate. Which you always seem to bloody forget. You and your fucking artistic ego. After that, they didn't see each other for nearly a fortnight. Saul tried to apologise. Don't, she said. I hate that. When you mean something, just say it. Let me decide how to handle it. The private visiting room was small. The white tiles and a single barred window. Pearson wasn't chained, but a guard observed both of them from a wooden chair in the corner, nearest the locked metal door. They're transferring me to a high-security prison next month. Did you hear? Pearson, close-cropped, balding head, gleamed into the stark light, watched for reaction. Soul, in equal measure, drawn to, and disgusted by, Martin Pearson. His smile appeared generous and honest, Yet both of them knew there was nothing but calculation behind it. Yes, you told me. I mean, my fellow inmates might kill me if I murdered kids. But that's not my thing. Still, they're not likely to be too keen on me. It's not the outcome I hoped for, to be honest. Look, can we just get on with this? Pearson stopped smiling. It's all business with you, Saul, isn't it? He made a clicking sound with the tip of his tongue. Then he coughed into his hand and reached for a pack of cigarettes Saul had brought for him. Instead of taking the whole pack, he withdrew three and handed the pack back. 
I'm trying to give up, he said. Then he signalled to the guard that the interview was over. Once Sol was back in his Audi, he poked a finger into the open pack and withdrew a tiny foil envelope, still moist with the slava from Pearson's cheek pouch. Unfolded, it proved to contain a notelet with an address on it and a date, 2nd of December, 8pm. He realised his hands were trembling. He had to smoke one of the cigarettes before the trembling stopped. Ice-edged wind sliced through his wool jacket as he pushed through the gap. Behind the construction company's plywood hoarding, the sandstone walls of the old hospital looked damp in the wash of moonlight. Saul remembered how the old Victorian building had looked in daylight, how he had once visited his grandmother on her deathbed here. He smiled again the sharp tang of the disinfectant intermingled with his mother's perfume. Huge artist's renderings of the hospital and development at another site papered the hoarding. But no matter what an architectural masterpiece the new hospital would be, people would still die there, like his grandmother did here in the old building when he was ten years old. As Pearson had promised, the sash window to the kitchen slid up without obstruction. The rotting wood meant that the wheel lock would have just pulled away when the killer entered the first time. On the steel worktop against the window there were dark stains, which he hoped were not blood. The metal boomed as his boots hit it, and he slid to the floor. He swung the torchlight across the greasy cookers, freezers and worktops. Sweeping the beam about the kitchen, he caught sight of the mask-like face of a man. He stumbled back in horror, even as he realised it was only his reflection in the darkened glass door panel. He turned away. Then he dumped his camera bag onto the central worktop, glancing uneasily upwards at the metal frame with hooks from which one would have dangled pots and pans and chef's utensils. The frame bounced the dim light back at him. He fumbled with lenses and flash gun and checked his supply of film rolls. The latter he stuffed in his shirt pockets. He draped the pentax. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. With its heavy telephoto lens across its chest and headed for the stairwell. He managed to obtain ground plans to the hospital from the Royal National Incorporation of Architects and had tried to memorise the route to Ward 27. It was two flights up. The stairwell enclosed the dead lift shaft. As he ascended the stairs every so often, he shone the torch over the tilted walls and the grill enclosing the shaft. Saul had never been afraid of the dark, even as a child. What scared him was losing people, people he loved. Death was not so much the horror of decay for him, but the horror of the great absence and loneliness it brought, the living. Ward 27 was three doors down from the central stair, on the right. The number had significance for Pearson. It was the age of the man he had said he had murdered. In his final email, he explained to Saul how he had bound the man to the bed frame without its mattress and started cutting him with a scalpel. A scalpel because they were in the hospital where the victim worked as a nurse. Pearson always chose his weapon from appropriateness and irony. He had left the man alive, with a supply of food and water, and one arm free to reach for it. The chains on his other arm and ankles made it impossible for him to break free. Ward 27 was to the rear of the hospital, so no matter how Pearson's prey screamed, no one would have heard him. I wanted to find out what would happen, Pearson explained in his email having heard that an animal will chew its leg off to escape a trap. I wondered if a man was capable of the same. Saul felt the slickness of perspiration on his palm as he laid it against the cold door to the ward. He pushed it open. It was some time before he could begin to understand what he saw when he entered the room. Had someone from the upper floors of the tenements, which backed the hospital grounds, been looking hard, they may have seen after a time an intermittent flash from one of the hospital's upper windows, 
as if sheet lightning were trapped inside the building and trying to escape. When he was done, Saul returned quickly to his flat, where he found Pauline waiting for him. Where have you been? I've been frantic. She pushed her hair back whenever she was angry, and as she spoke, she hooked her hair behind her ears and slid her hands across the top of her scalp, as if to flatten her curls. Tenderly, Saul held her wrists to stop her. I had to take some night shots for an article about the city after dark. She scowled at him. That's a lie, isn't it? I can always tell. If it's another woman, you'd better tell me now, or I'm out that door. He saw that she meant it, but feared involving her. He sat down on the couch and wondered how he could help her understand. I could be in a bit of trouble, Pauline. I did something bloody stupid and now I'm paying for it. Strangely, she appeared to relax then. Being in trouble was something she could at least understand, and maybe even be able to help with. Pauline was pragmatic in that respect. She waited for him to speak, but by way of reply, he went to the darkroom and emerged with a photograph of the serial killer, Martin Pearson. He wants photographs of his victims, and he wants me to be the dealer. She recognised the face, which had been plastered across all the papers only months previously. She looked more closely at the print, at the dead space that was Pearson's non-reflecting left eye. Pauline may not have understood why that eye was fascinating, but she seemed to pull away from it reluctantly. Tell the police, Saul, she said. I can't, he said, and then told her why. They went to bed after some unfruitful debate. They didn't make love, but fell asleep holding hands. A tapping sound woke him. It took him a second or two to adjust to the grey light of dawn, and another second to realise what awoke him. A crow was sitting on the window ledge, tapping the glass experimentally with its beak. It tilted its head from side to side as though puzzled. Not a very smart crow, then, Saul thought. Maybe a rural crow come to the city for the first time. For an instant, its eye watched him, cold and impassive as a camera lens. When he threw back the duvet, the bird took flight. The room was cold and he shivered, reminding himself to adjust the central heating to its winter setting. Pauline's long hair snared around her head like a damp fishing net. He wanted to brush it clear of her face, but hesitated when he saw how soundly she slept. After a shower and coffee, he crept into the dark room like a thief. Once he was inside, Pauline wouldn't enter unless invited. And if she wanted to see the photographs, she would need to wait for him to decide if he could show them. As soon as the negs were developed, he loaded them into the enlarger. The negative image, even enlarged on the plate, made no more sense now than when he'd shot them, nor would they be likely to make sense after they were developed. The black, ragged shape that would be pale, white in the final print, might have been a map of an unknown country, but he knew what it was. It was a swathe of human skin, bits of fat and muscle tissue still adhering to it, and pieces of bone which were unmistakably vertebrae. Pearson had skinned his victim like a cat, careless of removing other tissue as well. Clove pegs pinned the flesh to the bed springs, bloody tissue uppermost, in a mocking simulacrum of a human torso. As a child, Martin remembered his parents taking him around Calvin Grove Museum and Art Gallery, 
and the boxed, dried and pinned butterflies and exotic beetles that were brought to mind by the expansive pale skin, which had once wrapped a man. Pearson, like any collector, would have a catalogue filing system of his kills. He would know who, when, where, what was done and what results he got. Every angle, that's what Pearson's instructions were, and Saul obeyed them to the letter. But Pearson had lied about what Saul would find. Who could say this victim was tortured and killed in Ward 27, or whether it happened elsewhere and the skin brought there for a specific purpose? While working, Saul was always emotionally detached, whether it was behind the lens photographing his subjects or developing the prints. His focus was on perfection, rarely achieved but always striven for, the perfect moment for the shutter to click, when the light was right, framing and subject matter just so, using only the best tools for printing, the most expensive chemicals and paper, a dark room many a professional photographer would envy. But it was never enough to satisfy him. Perfection was always just out of reach, and that made him angry and frustrated. He wanted to photograph something that no one had ever done before and photograph it well, and Martin Pearson was giving him the opportunity to do just that. Well, if that was what Pearson expected of him, so be it. Saul was part of a game that Pearson had set in motion, and if there was a prize to be won, then Saul needed to do more than accept he was part of that game. He must also try to master the rules. Pearson's first move had been blackmail. His second was offering bait. So far, Sol had neither defended nor attacked, but he was starting to understand, like a chess player, that he must be willing to make a sacrifice in order to stand a chance of winning. He made a call to the psychiatric unit, only to be told that Pearson was mid-transfer to a prison just outside Stirling. He would need to wait a week or so before he could apply for visiting privileges. Saul was annoyed with himself for forgetting the date. He packed up the prints and decided to return to bed. Maybe Pauline could go into work a bit later today, he thought, but when he got back to the bedroom, she'd gone. She would have shouted goodbye, but so intent must he have been on his work that he hadn't heard. He switched on the computer to check his emails... There was another one from Pearson. The message said, I killed the others. You see why I need a good photographer. And there was an attachment, which Saul saw was an image file, identifiable by the .jpg suffix. He clicked to open it, and an image gradually revealed itself, occupying half the screen space. It was dark, with a greenish hue, clearly taken with a digital camera without proper lighting or image resolution. The terrified face of a man came into view. The face was severely bruised and cut, with one eyelid cut away to expose the white bulb of an eyeball. The blood-splattered shirt was indistinct at first, until Saul realised that what looked like shadows on the shoulders were actually a palette, and upon closer inspection, the insignia on the shirt pocket was unmistakably that of Her Majesty's Prison Service. Oh, Christ, Saul murmured. Jesus Christ! Pearson must have worked so quickly. His guards might have been at the end of their shift and perhaps the prison wasn't expecting them back that day. But what about the driver? He must surely have been in radio contact with his office. 
Martin Pearson had been prepared. That much was clear. The idea of there being an accomplice seemed more feasible than ever, and a chillier prospect than Martin working on his own. And hadn't he already made Saul his accomplice in providing post-mortem photographs of one victim, as well as the flayed hide of another? What else was he capable of? In spite of what was happening, Saul found himself weighing options the way he had done as a war photographer. On the one hand, telephoning might mean Pearson would be caught. On the other, it meant implicating himself. He reasoned that the guard and the van driver would be dead by now in any case, and saving their lives wasn't remotely feasible. And if the police were to find Pearson's emails on his computer which they could probably do, even if he erased the files, he was likely to be in prison for aiding and abetting murder. His chest felt tight with anxiety. More than once he glanced over at his camera bag. A thought kept coming to him, like thinking about sex at a funeral. The thought was this, maybe I can photograph Pearson with one of his victims. An image of Pauline's face came to his mind. Her smile was at war with his cold-blooded determination to achieve something no one had ever done before, and there was also the opportunity of selling the photographs for a lot of money, fame and fortune. No, no, that's impossible. Completely bloody insane, Sol. That Pauline loved him, he never doubted. For his part, he had always believed that he loved her in return, and yet it was as if he were always seeking something indefinable... Once he asked himself a question, could he really love anybody completely, or was love just a mirror of his selfish needs? Pauline told him once, You're too hard on yourself, Saul. Such high standards all the time. I never said I wanted Mr Perfect. And she added, smiling, Beside which Mr Perfect doesn't exist. Apologies to your ego. In some respects, being with Pauline was what he wanted more than anything. The best part of him felt that, at any rate. But there was his continual sense of dissatisfaction. With his life, with his work, a voice inside that cried out for something more, incoherently and irrationally. He thought, too, of all the editors who had rejected his work, how little he was paid for the work that was accepted, and how little recognition he got. For over an hour he alternately paced the room and threw himself on the couch and tried to unravel his tangled thoughts. But all along he knew what he wanted. If he were honest, the mental reasoning was simply a way of trying to justify himself. It was as though he watched himself from outside his own body as he reached for the camera bag, stocked up with film and lenses, pulled the bag across his shoulder and walked to the door. He was completely alert, adrenaline pumped, but nevertheless he kept walking and even jogged down the stairs. He knew where Pearson was. There was only one place en route to the prison where Pearson would be able to perpetrate his atrocities without being seen. It was only once he had got into the car, turned on the ignition and floored the accelerator, that he started to wonder what exactly he was doing. A man was being tortured and murdered, and he, Saul Mears, was planning to photograph the act. As he crossed the river onto the bypass, the motorway lights on their gigantic poles swept past in a pulsing rhythm. After a time, his eyes began to sting from the strobing lights. He tried to piece the puzzle together. The Ward 27 business still mystified him. 
Pearson couldn't have staged it for Saul. He wasn't to know he would be going to prison. And he didn't know Saul then. It must have just been one of Pearson's grotesque rituals. And he had built a story around it to draw Saul in, perhaps to make himself feel as powerful as he did during the act of killing, even though he was behind bars. He switched on the radio, a retro rock station, playing Tom Petty, then Neil Young, and then the news. Pearson's escape had made the headlines. Sol heard the words, vehicle and occupants still missing, before switching off. He started building an alibi for himself, how Pearson had lured him to the scene by threatening to kill the man if he brought the police, how he had made him bring his camera. It sounded feeble. If this was going to work, he needed how to make it plausible. He needed a Martin Pearson game plan. His mind raced. Thoughts tumbled over one another like clumsy acrobats, creating a stew of generalised anxiety and determination. On the way to the high-security prison, there were a few disused buildings and factory premises. Only one would provide an appropriate stage set. Sol estimated it would take 40 minutes to drive there. The colliery had closed years ago, all part of the general decline of the industry in the area. Although the wheel hoist which had taken the miners below the earth had been dismantled, the county still had a pit bing as its major landmark, a mountain of earth and shale and coal dust which many men had died of emphysema creating. The cages that had taken them deep down underground must have been like prison cells. Sol remembered the video and the cross-hatched grill work that he now knew was a miner's elevator cage. A damp breeze banged the corrupted iron-clad warehouse building. Mass clouds overhead threatened rain, while a hand of light across the horizon provided just enough visibility once the car headlamps were off. He crouched his way across gravel. Distant moans from the building might have been the wind through the openings in the structure, or something else. Then there came a horrifying scream. It seemed endless. Sol wanted to turn and run then, but fought the instinct. He trembled, even as he stepped forward to the door that hung off its hinges and entered the building. This is a war zone, he told himself. Just another war zone. Sol knew how to survive those. First, you need to lock down emotional responses. To be dispassionate. Survival instinct in its purest form. Not fight or flight. Something else. It had enabled him to stand his ground and photograph all manner of atrocities. Neither hails of bullets nor random explosions or eviscerated soldiers prevented him from doing his job. It was colder inside than out. At the far end of the warehouse, shapes moved, a halogen lamp casting a fretwork of writhing shadows. There was just enough light where Sol stood to make the frost on the inside of the corrugated walls sparkle. Pearson, he called, but it came out croaky. He coughed and called louder. Pearson, I came, like you said. And, for the benefit of the guard, just in case he made it out alive. No police, you said, and you'd let him go. All he got by way of response was a deep chuckle. Game players like Pearson could be inclined to participate in falsehoods if they were to move the game along. When he reached the cage, he had to avert his face for a moment. The guard's arms had already been removed and only bloody meat and the stumps of his shoulders remained. 
There were tourniquets on the stumps to slow the flow of blood so he would not die too swiftly. He was tied to a chair with what looked like electrical cable. Pearson was the epitome of calm. He smiled gently, politely. Both men were inside the cage that had obviously been thrown in here along with disused mining equipment such as drill bits, shovels, pickaxes, helmets and the like. Sol focused his attention on Pearson and Pearson alone as he unshouldered his camera bag and put it on the ground between his feet. He squatted down to open it, keeping his eyes on Pearson the whole time, continuing to do so even as he fixed the lenses, checked shutters on the two cameras he'd brought. Like a highly trained infantryman, he would field strip his rifle in pitch blackness under a heavy fire. Sol could take apart and reassemble his camera and load film with his eyes shut, or while he was watching his subject while deciding the best way to shoot it. He risked a glance at the prison guard. The man was unconscious, his head forward as though ashamed of his ruined face. Why are you doing this? Pearson used a yellow duster to wipe the blade of the tenon saw he was holding. Polishing off the blood, he replied, Why are you? There were more tools on the ground before him. He must have stolen them, maybe from a garage. A thought struck Saul then. He realised there was something different about Pearson, and the difference was that he was wearing the uniform of a prison guard, the uniform of the guard he had killed. Without being asked, Saul started to shoot the scene. He shot through the mesh of the tilted cage and stepped inside with Pearson and his victim and took close-ups of Pearson with his torture implements, of his victim's face, of his dismembered arms which had been laid on the ground in front of him. The hands curled in on themselves tightly like the claws of a trussed turkey. Pearson said with a giggle, The long arms of the law! Then the guard came to and started shrieking and begging for his life. The camera flash startled him. The realisation that someone else was there seemed to enliven him more, as though the presence of another could afford some hope. Jesus, please, don't let him kill me! The man was clearly deranged with terror, but Saul had switched off. In real war zones, he had seen much worse horror than this. He told himself this man was already dead and let the idea take hold. For the next hour, Saul took carefully framed photographs of the slow butchery of a human being. He saw the meticulous, almost loving way Pearson cut away the guard's clothes, made horizontal slices with a knife across his chest until the skin looked like a Venetian blind. He cut off the man's ears and then his feet until he was no more than a tailor's dummy or a discarded child's doll that had been ripped to shreds. Saul continued to take photographs. Pearson did something to the guard's vocal cords, so his screams became frantic whispers. Fortunately for the guard, he was comatose long before Pearson finished. Pearson sighed with discontent. I just don't have the right material, Sol. Not like you, eh? He indicated the cameras with a nod of his head. Sol dared not to speak. He felt ominous behind the camera. The unforgiving eye of the lens took in everything with neither rebuke nor praise. The camera, after all, was only doing its job. You know why I'm doing this, Sol, really. For the same reason as you. We're not part of the crowd. You know what it feels like, don't you? You walk among them in the street, in their hundreds, flocks of them, darting around aimlessly, day after day. 
No purpose, you see. Of course you do. When we observe them in a mass like that, we know their lives have no purpose. And if you don't mind a photographic analogy, no, focus. I can give them that focus. It's as though their lives have been leading to this one moment. A sharpness. A clarity comes to them. It's as if they realise finally what their lives have all been about. It's quite a beautiful thing, really. Pearson finished then. He pushed his hand into the flayed ribcage and simply squeezed the exposed heart until it stopped. Why it hadn't stopped long before now was a miracle. I use drugs, Pearson explained. I have a contact who supplies me with the stuff. Stops the shock, killing people too soon if I use replacement fluids too. He took from his jacket pocket a syringe with a clear liquid in it and waggled it by way of illustration. Sol sat on the ground suddenly, as though his legs could no longer support him. He felt the frozen mesh of the metal cage against his back. He looked at the cameras in his lap without really seeing them. How can I... he said... How can you what? Pearson crouched down in front of him. The right eye, which had no reflection in Sol's photograph, reflected something now. Sol's inverted face. How can I develop this film? I can't. I can't show it to anyone. Pauline, how could he go back to her now? He was so confused. He was finding it so hard to concentrate. A dark shape loomed over him. A scent of engine oil and rusty machinery infiltrated his consciousness and he looked up. Pearson was expressionless, but his voice soothing, calm as he spoke. You have nothing to lose, Sol. After this, you need to begin again. You do see that, don't you? Yes, he saw quite plainly. And finally, life as he had known it was over... This one act had closed a door on him. Even if he went back to Pauline now, to his old life, this wouldn't go away. He had watched and photographed a human being disassembled, like a used car for spare parts. You're going to be fine, Sol, the voice went on. After all, you passed the test, the War 27 test. That was when I knew I could trust you, the way I knew I could trust the friend who set it up for me. Pearson put a hand on Sol's head as though baptising him. Sure, the film is worth a lot of money, I have connections, but that's not the point, is it? Sol was tired. Pearson's tone was so reassuring, and he could see now just how ordinary his life had been up until now, the banality of struggling to pay his bills, to keep the proverbial wolf from the door. And it was not that Pauline hadn't meant a great deal to him. She had, but he'd found it so hard to love her the way she seemed to want. He wondered if he had ever really loved anyone. No, Martin Pearson was right. It wasn't the money. But he was still uncertain. At the back of his mind, something told him his life was over. But he was also being born into a new one, and his voice was a child's, as he said to Pearson, What am I going to do, Martin? What now? And gently, ever so gently, Pearson crouched down, pushed hands under Sol's arms, laced them together around his back and slowly pulled him upright. Sol was too dazed to be aware of how tenderly Martin treated him. He couldn't fix on anything, but Martin continued to whisper softly in his ear, 
A mother to a child. Everything's going to be all right, Saul. Don't worry. You're with me now. As they walked slowly together out of the shed and into the cool night, huddled like lovers, Martin folded his right arm like a huge black wing, covetously around Saul's shoulders. I sat down and I started to cry. I guess I never knew me at all. Coca-Cola sex and pineapple, you said. And how that made me laugh. God is great I pull the trigger and sharing that, John. Jonathan. A Crow Among the Starlings, by the way, was first published in Horror Express magazine. A bit more about John Dodds. The first two novels in his crime series, The 
Kendrick Chronicles, Bone Machine, and Kali's Kiss are now out as audiobooks from Blackstone Audio. The books are narrated by the celebrated British actor Robin Sachs. And if, after listening to tonight's story, you still want to touch bases with John Dodds, you may reach him at bonemachines.wordpress.com. I'll put that on the homepage at talestoterrify.com. As mentioned, our composer-singer-narrator for A Crow Among the Starlings is Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan is a British singer-songwriter-author who, like Mr. Dodds, now lives in Bulgaria and has numerous music albums to his credit. He's been featured on the BBC and independent worldwide radio and extensively on national Bulgarian television. He regularly writes and records songs for English-language learners for the organization The English Club Online, based in Cambridge, England. These are designed to teach English to worldwide non-English-language speakers, those primarily in South Asia. Also, Jonathan has just completed his first three novels, based on the character Gabriel 13 from Meat, Memoirs of a Psychopath. You can find out more about Jonathan and his work at, well, at a YouTube site I'll put on the Tales to Terrify homepage at talestoterrify.com. And you can also download the novel Meat free from smashwords.com. Jonathan, by the way, currently teaches English at the American College Arcus in Veliko Tornovo, Bulgaria. And no, I have no idea if that's the correct pronunciation. Well, it is October, apparently reluctantly as far as the weather is concerned. And while I don't dress for Halloween, it is time to crawl under the bed and bring forth the box of traditional Halloween films, uh, the Universal Horror Classics, uh, Beetlejuice, Sleepy Hollow et al. Vincent Price is Actor of the Month on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, so, who am I to disparage of the season? Well, I do like the weather when the weather actually becomes Octoberish here in the hood. I love the scent of wood smoke and the aforementioned apple cider and cinnamon. And it is time for a whole passel of new book releases within our field, two of which this year will include brand shrieking new tales by... Me. My story, Instructions on the Use of the M57 Clacker, will be in Fear the Reaper from Crystal Lake Publishing, and my literally just-polished-and-sent-off jars will be put up in Canopic Jars, Tales of Mummies and Mummification from Great Old Ones Publishing. Both books are large, generously large, volumes of as Poe might say, forgotten lore, and each includes stories by authors with whom I am utterly chuffed to be allowed to share inked space. Fear the Reaper, I believe, has just a cat's whisker, over 400 pages, and includes work by... Well, go. Go to our homepage. There are links. I'm not sure when the books will be available for pre-order, 
But the information about both will be at TalesToTerrify.com, okay? Okay. Oh, when you go to Crystal Lake Publishing's site, you'll notice that the release in November, just after Fear the Reaper, will be Things Slip Through, a collection by Horror 101's own Kevin Lucia. And that is the evening, children of the night. I would have you be upstanding and please, at your leisure, prepare to issue forth into the darker and hopefully quieter streets, the last baseball of the season having been tossed, hit, and lost in the ivy of Wrigley Field, and all that remains of the wandering blue-clad people are the ghosts of passions past— and the fervid hopes of those still clinging desperately to the bars of the neighborhood and to the unseasonable, unreasonable summer that now is gone with the Cubs' chance for glory now. I mention all of this simply to let you know that you will likely see few, perhaps no, atrocities on your homeward way. Drunks may stagger, spew, and fall. Rats may run and tumble. You'll make it home, I'm sure. And when you reach your bed and close your eyes, try to not see those images that may lie latent in your imaginations. They've crawled there from your ears, and now, well, now... They would surely lead to less than pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. About the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>